Thank you for listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. It is not intended, nor should it be considered an invitation or inducement to buy or sell any of the underlying instruments cited, including, but not limited to, crypto assets, financial instruments, or any instruments that reference any index provided by CF Benchmarks Limited. This recording is not intended to persuade or incite you to buy or sell a security or securities noted within. Any commentary, interviews, and discussions are opinions only and should not be considered a personalized recommendation. Please contact your financial advisor or professional before making any investment decision. Some of the underlying instruments cited within this recording may be restricted to certain customer categories in certain jurisdictions. You're listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets, the home of informed conversation about crypto for institutions building the future of finance, presented by CF Benchmarks. I'm Ken O'Delaga, Head of Content, and I'm joined by Gabe Selby, our Lead Research Analyst. Hey everybody, thank you very much for joining us for another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. Today, we have a particularly special episode, because I'm sure some of you have noticed it's a really interesting time in crypto possibly one of the most interesting times that we've seen for a few years, because a spate of very large high-profile asset managers have filed to the SEC to list a spot Bitcoin ETF. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And to that end, we are joined by our CEO, our boss, Mr. Sweet Chung, and we're going to talk about uh, these, all the ramifications of this, um, ETF, these ETF applications. So thank you very much for joining us, uh, Sweet. Great to be here. First things first, what is the significance of a spot Bitcoin ETF really, really top level? Maybe that can lead us into a nice conversation. From an industry perspective, I think these impacts are, you know, obviously going to be quite significant, not just for the TradFi world, but also for crypto in general. Because, you know, right now, if you look at the U.S. uh, ETF market, it's approximately $7 trillion in size, uh, according to some Bloomberg data. And uh, you have the Bitcoin market cap, which is, you know, just shy of about 600 billion. So less, a little less than 10%. And so I think, you know, for the first time, you have this asset that's going to be able to have this, uh, this vehicle, this vehicle that's going to be able to trade just like any other stock or ETF on a listed exchange. And, and that's going to basically allow from like the TradFi world, all these wirehouses, all these wealth managers, all these banks to have this listed product potentially for the first time. So institutions are gonna have access to, you know, their large books of clients, um, their investment advisors, their financial advisors are gonna be able to kind of cover Bitcoin in a more formal setting and talk about it and how it fits into the client's portfolio. Um, you know, I think really for the very first time in, a, in kind of a legit manner. So I think, you know, from an industry perspective, you know, I'd like to get everyone else's take, but I think this is really, you know, what it's all about here. So it's a it's a really big move for both sides. So crypto and TradFi. I would agree with Gabe. I think it's a big, potentially a big moment for both the crypto world and the TradFi world, because as Gabe said, finally, you're going to see inflows into crypto come through those traditional, well-established channels, wealth channels, RIA channels, broker-dealer channels, of household names that we've heard of going through to routing orders to a national stock exchange, uh, and those orders resulting in the buying and selling of Bitcoin by an asset manager, whether it's BlackRock, Invesco, you know, household names. So I think that that's a real watershed moment. 
changes the perception, I think, of many investors as to whether Bitcoin is, quote unquote, for them. Right? So you have a very big psychological change, I think. We're into a different paradigm for crypto and, and the manner in which it is discussed, the manner in which one potentially allocates to it and the implementation uh, of that allocation. And when you wrap all that together, the world has changed. Right? Uh, so I think that at the highest, highest level, it is a complete paradigm shift. The highest profile filing, of course, is um, by BlackRock. Um, and you know, just in case uh, there are people who are watching who are not entirely aware of the situation. Obviously, BlackRock's the largest asset manager in the world in terms of ETFs, most certainly. And uh, one of the reasons why we are particularly watching the situation with rapt attention is because BlackRock is proposing to use our CMECF Bitcoin reference rate, the New York variant, highly liquid, possibly the most liquid uh, Bitcoin index of its kind for that time of day. And uh, that has many, many implications, which we're, of course, going to circle back to during the conversation. I just want to kind of take it to like the investor level for a quick second, because to me, I think one thing that is clearly obvious, but I don't know if we're really going to fully appreciate it until this potentially happens or occurs is the simplicity factor. So it really, for an investor, um, you know, I think for us crypto enthusiasts, it's hard for us to kind of appreciate the fact that for some folks, they just, you know, they find it difficult to trade on crypto exchanges, on centralized exchanges, you know, open up crypto wallets, gain exposure that way. And so I think, you know, for investors, it's really about just having this pure play exposure for the very first time, which is going to really open up doors. And unlike closed end funds, which already exist on Bitcoin, which owns spot Bitcoin, this shouldn't have any of those practical issues when you see, you know, redemptions or exiting the fund or buying into the fund where you have these wide, you know, gaps between uh, the spot price in the market and the nav of the fund. So that's what we're saying. It's, it's a game changer for, for investors alike. So I think it's really, really exciting to follow this along. And, um, you know, we just have to kind of wait and see what happens next. Clearly, um, we are in an environment where, you know, most people are aware of the sort of timeline of this sort of thing. And probably the biggest characteristic, most obvious characteristic is that right from the very, very first spot Bitcoin ETF filing, I think it was by the Winkle Voss twins um, back there in 2013, if I'm not mistaken, right up to the current time. So that's 10 years. Every single spot Bitcoin ETF filing has been rejected. So, you know, the big question on many people's lips is why does anyone think now is different? And maybe, Sweet, you'd like to sort of address that first? Yeah, of course. So you rightly mentioned that uh, since 2013, there have been umpteen Bitcoin, spot Bitcoin ETF filings, all of which have been rejected. And in 2017, the Winklevoss twins tried again after their first attempt in 2013. In 2017, they tried again. And the SEC disapproved that particular request. And it brought up, it, it basically created a bar. It articulated a bar, right, that if spot Bitcoin ETFs are to be listed on a national stock exchange, the national stock exchange that lists the shares of that spot Bitcoin ETF must have surveillance sharing agreements with underlying spot markets, quote unquote, of significant size, right? Because under the 1933 Securities and Exchange Act, a national stock exchange has an obligation to ensure that the trading of instruments on its marketplace is free of manipulation. And 
given that spot Bitcoin is traded on unregulated marketplaces, uh, such as cryptocurrency exchanges, the vast majority uh, of which are unregulated marketplaces, the SEC believed that this surveillance sharing needed to be in place to allow the national stock exchange that lists the shares of the ETF to be able to prevent manipulative trading and to also identify it when it comes uh, happens and be able to uh, inform regulators, et cetera, et cetera, because obviously a law will have been broken. So that was the bar. So it had been articulated in 2017 and has been further articulated upon through 2019 through something called the Wilshire Order when Wilshire Phoenix filed. And when Wilshire Phoenix filed, they cited the CME futures market as that market of significant size uh, by which surveillance sharing was in place with CME uh, and therefore any potential manipulative trader would reasonably, you'd reasonably expect them to have to transact on the CME as well. The SEC rejected that and said, no, that does not meet the bar of market of significant size. So now we fast forward to today and we see that a number of the national stock exchanges seeking to list the shares of spot Bitcoin ETFs have unveiled surveillance sharing agreements with crypto spot exchanges, as well as having the surveillance sharing agreements with the CME. And it is the belief, you know, ourselves at CF Benchmarks, we are involved in this process. It is a collective, it has been a collective process to try and interpret that bar, right? The SEC has stated a bar. We've tried to interpret that bar and try to meet that bar. And we believe that that bar will be met. And so therefore, this time it is different. We believe that the bar will be met and we have every confidence that the SEC, you know, means what it says. It's stated a bar. If we can meet the bar, then it will uh, allow the listing of the ETFs. You know, for me, this information, uh, the, the sharing agreements that Sui's been talking about is something that it, it's so into the weeds. Um, I think most people never knew this was really a, a thing that was holding up the Bitcoin ETF, pop Bitcoin ETF process. So I would like to ask Sui just... How did that whole process start? Like, there's a lot of different pieces to getting these parties to kind of come together and, you know, share this information. Um, what was that like in the beginning? And, and, you know, how did that translate to what we ended up kind of creating in the end? Yeah, I think that, you know, that process was a long one. There's you know, number one is the identification. You identify, you know, this is, you know, the, the SEC has stated this is the bar. I think that a lot of the industry had recognized, okay, this is the bar. And then it becomes a case of, Okay, if that's the bar, what does it actually look like? What does meeting it in practical terms, what does that look like? And you have TradFi institutions that are regulated in the Securities and Exchange Act 1933 of a certain way of doing things. You have cryptocurrency exchanges that are, at least in the US, regulated by the CFTC, not regulated by the SEC, who have a, their way of doing things. Uh, and not necessarily a strong familiarity with the provisions of the Securities and Exchange Act 1933. So you need a degree of meeting of minds. You need both sides to effectively say, look, this is, this is what is needed and this is what is possible to deliver. And then how do you deliver that? And yeah, as, as you rightly mentioned, this is well into the weeds. We're talking not just policy, we're talking process, procedure, implementation. So there's a lot to be... Uh, hashed out and both sides obviously have to be comfortable 
to make this work because otherwise it just won't work. And, you know, because also when this, when the mechanisms come, come under scrutiny, which undoubtedly they will, they have to withstand that scrutiny. You know, have you guys thought about what could happen and, and therefore how would this work? You know, how are the obligations under the 1933 Securities and Exchange Act going to be met? Right. That's, that's the bottom line. So there is a, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of you know, learning about the other side. There's a lot of learning about each other, okay, how each of the systems operate, you know, how they're different. I mean, fundamentally, yes, they are marketplaces, but they are, they are operated very, very differently. On cryptocurrency exchanges, just one example, cryptocurrency exchanges, it's direct access. As a private individual or as an institution, you open an account on principle, right? I, sweet John, can open an account on a cryptocurrency exchange. In traditional markets, that's not the case. I open an account with a broker. The broker is a member of the exchange and the exchange receives my orders through the broker. So you already have that sort of difference, right? So, you know, that's only one of the many, many differences between how the different platforms operate. And you've got to reconcile that and at the same time, get everyone on the same page about, okay, if this were to happen on the national stock exchange, then do we do about it and how can we go about it and what do we have reliance upon uh, from a cryptocurrency spot exchange from a regulated derivatives market such as the CME how is all that going to come together how is uh, this going to be resolved so there's a lot of detail involved you know the actual SSA aspect of the these applications I believe all five of the applications and major applications that I am aware of have actually you know, from the following the SEC's prompting, amended their applications to include an SSA. We could obviously talk about this for the entire rest of the podcast. But having said that, I want to sort of like completely contradict myself because I do want to ask you something specific about that, uh, uh, Sweet. Two things, actually. Number one, you say that um, in the 2017 second attempt by the Winklevoss twins and the following the disapproval of that, the SEC clarified a few points. Now, I wanted to just make it clear by asking you maybe a rhetorical question that, in fact, that this is not necessarily official guidance. It's not necessarily set in stone. How reliable is even the notion that an SSA or something akin to that is what the SEC requires? Is the SEC's bar? How reliable is that notion? So the SEC stated that there are two ways to meet the bar. One is surveillance sharing agreements, or two compelling evidence that the Bitcoin market is uniquely resistant to manipulation. And there's a whole uh, paragraph in the essay about that. So given the effectively impossible to prove that anything is uniquely manipulation resistant, so the other option is the SSA. Uh, and the, the SEC in each of its disapproval orders for Bitcoin ETFs has recited what it said in the 2017 Winklevoss order cited it uh, and recited it over and over again. So I think it's a pretty reliable bar. It's a, it's a very clear bar. It is not some, and, and these disapproval orders are published. They're in the public domain. So this is not behind closed doors briefings. This is a document that anyone can go and read. It's on the public internet. And I've spent far too much time reading them myself. Well, as someone who's uh, trying to get uh, his groomsmen coordinated with the tailor, uh, I, I can, uh, 
I can sympathize with all the moving pieces, uh, SUI, the CF Benchmarks team, and all of these asset managers, the exchanges have gone through. You've got it worse, Gabe, huh? let's face it, you've got it worse. Uh, I, don't, I don't think so, but you know, <laughs> I, I'll tip my cap and say, wow, that's a, you know, it's a lot of moving pieces, it sounds like, to get everybody on the same page, to get you know, this, this, these surveillance sharing agreements across, uh, you know, across the finish line. So it's pretty awesome to see it, you know, we're finally at this point again. So I think our next topic is, uh, I think just kind of meant to bring the listeners back to the beginning of maybe how this all started. And Sui, you've, you've been at this for quite some time, you know, leading the CF Benchmarks team through some of these major milestones, such as the launch of the CME uh, group's Bitcoin futures. So I was hoping you could take us back to kind of how this all began with just the Bitcoin reference rate and how we've constructed this institutional reference rate for Bitcoin and how that's helped kind of facilitate these steps forward to where we're at now, where we can kind of go into the grand filing again with these asset managers to try and get a spot Bitcoin ETF approved. Yeah, very happy to share that, Gabe. So, you know, as you know, CF Benchmarks began the Bitcoin reference rate in 2016. Uh, we wanted to create a, a benchmark daily price for Bitcoin that was manipulation resistant, that was representative of the global Bitcoin market, and that was replicable. Very important that it's replicable. So it's not just a number, it's more than just a number. It is a number that traders, market makers, product providers could actually replicate so they could offer uh, Bitcoin referencing products uh, without taking undue risks uh, and and be able to be fully hedged. That was 2016. In 2017, CME Group launched its Bitcoin dollar futures contract to settle to the BRR. And that's when, if you like, the BRR came to life. Right? It had a liquidity rail. It had a financial product, regulated financial product that was referencing it. Over the years, the liquidity in the CME Bitcoin dollar futures contract built more and more both institutions and individual traders started trading it. And in 2019, more products were added um, where we had options, we had options contracts, we had, and then 2020 when we had micro futures, micro options, Ether was added into the mix as well. So that complex just keeps growing. And then in 2021, we started to see ETFs in other countries, not the US, in Canada, in Brazil. Bitcoin reference rate is oft used there, is used pretty extensively in those markets. So you begin to have uh, an entire liquidity complex of different types of financial products, all settling to referencing um, the same benchmark, making it easier and easier to replicate, harder and harder to manipulate because there is more trading, more liquidity going through this benchmark. So it's improving those aspects of the index. And that gives confidence to more institutions to issue more products. So we now have OTC derivatives and um, total return swaps uh, from dealers. We have structured products from structured products issuers, all referencing the BRR, adding again, adding more liquidity. and. Just uh, at the end of this month, CME will have a new product, the Bitcoin Ether spread or ratio futures, uh, which will settle to basically the relative difference to between Bitcoin and Ether as signaled by the Bitcoin reference rate and, its, and the Ether dollar reference rate. And that will be the latest tool 
for investors to be able to manage their exposure, manage gain exposure, reduce exposure to the two largest cryptos. So it's been a, it's been quite a journey, and it's been one where we've seen another use case, another layer of liquidity is added, and the benchmark becomes more liquid. It becomes more resistant to manipulation. It becomes more replicable and therefore more representative. And we culminate that with the confidence that the likes of BlackRock have in filing for Bitcoin ETFs using you know, a part of that complex, the New York variant, the, the BRR's New York variant, which strikes at 4 p.m. New York time. So it's been an incredible journey and it's an incredible validation of all the work that all the team at CF Benchmarks has done over the years. And we're very proud to be able to facilitate in our small way, our, our small way to facilitate adoption through this channel, through the regulated financial products channel, through a channel that many investors are more familiar with and more comfortable with than creating a self-hosted wallet and onboarding with cryptocurrency exchanges. There's nothing wrong with that, but you know, we have to accept that certain investors are not comfortable with that route to cryptocurrency exposure. And CF Benchmarks is very proud to have facilitated other routes uh, that can be taken to gain cryptocurrency exposure and further adoption of the asset class. So think about that ETH Bitcoin uh, ratio future, the latest crypto exposure futures contract um, launched by the CME, or rather it will be launched on the 31st of July pending regulatory approval. What do you envisage um, this new tool for traders being used for? Just a top level answer, if you will. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's actually quite an interesting product because it allows investors to, to effectively try and position themselves on the, if you like, the race to adoption. So from, you know, from here on out, is Ether's relative adoption going to be faster than Bitcoin's relative adoption or is it going to be the other way around? So you know, there's some very interesting event phenomena, you know, potential event phenomena that one can position oneself for. So for example, will the Bitcoin halving happen first or will 20% of the Ether supply be staked first? Right. So, i.e., you know, what's going to restrict the supply of each given coin and which one is going to happen first? And given the demand-supply nature of the price dynamics for crypto, you know, whichever one happens first is going to, one would expect its price movement to happen first. So, therefore, this is a very interesting instrument to be able to express those sorts of views. Gabe, the... You know, I mean, you, you you must have seen parallels to, to this type of product in traditional markets. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to kind of see how uh, this ratio has kind of evolved over time. And I think you have instances when you go into these risk-off bear market environments and Bitcoin seems to outperform relative to ETH. And it's kind of like that defensive price action that you would expect. And then you have these moments when uh, developer activity on on ETH is 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 heating up, and there's a lot of interest to build you know these decentralized protocols. You looked at the DeFi summer, um, you know that we had a few years back, and then ETH really starts to perform. So, like you were saying, it's about looking at this as I think positioning, seeing how the markets are are positioning or, or wanting to see happen with you know Bitcoin versus Ether. It's this ratio, it's this price ratio type dynamic trade. 
And I think we, we do have some content that we've been working on here at CFB. If you're listening, you know, be sure to go to our website and you can uh, you can find more information there. I know, Ken, you did a, a great kind of introductory piece on really what this ratio is about. And I kind of walk the, the readers through some uh, some historical themes and, and key moments in Bitcoin ETH ratio. Yeah, that's um, the best place to learn about it, as well as the CME's uh, pages. Obviously, if you just type in E slash BTC, you'll go immediately to the CME's um, uh, information about this new ratio that's launching on the 31st of July. Guys, as usual, we could uh, talk for at least another half an hour, but we simply can't, unfortunately. Um, there, There is a time limit for this. So, um I'll just simply end by saying, yes, you can find more information about everything we've talked about and other stuff at uh, cfbenchmarks.com. Go and look at our weekly newsletter. Go and find the latest uh, monthly uh, market report. And then uh, go and also look at the most recent uh, quarterly attribution report, which um, gets the depths of the market and the factors driving uh, the market uh, through our CF Digital Asset Classification Structure Taxonomy. But for now, thank you very much indeed, uh, Sui, for joining us for uh, this episode. For your contribution, Gabe, as usual, brilliant. Thanks so much. And uh, you, the listeners and watchers, we appreciate your presence and we hope to see you again before too long. Thank you very much for listening to another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. We'll see you again next time.